and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys. Um, you know, I, I got such a great job getting to answer your <laughs> guys' questions uh, every week. And, and, uh, and the questions that come in are just so, so awesome. Uh, okay, so first thing I want to do is real fast plug the podcast for this week because I did a collaboration with Clint Haycock, former uh, evangelical minister who has uh, sort of converted in the same way I have out of his faith and into uh, exposing abusive behavior uh, with the evangelicals in the same way I expose abusive behavior with Scientology and other destructive cults. So we got together and we decided to uh, do some commentary and talk about The Family, uh, which is a, a new documentary that's a documentary series from Alex Gibney that's uh, featured on Netflix. It's a limited series, so if you're going to watch it, watch it now. It is absolutely fascinating. And we did a little discussion and commentary about uh, some of the stuff that we learned in there. And um, and I, I thought it was kind of fun, kind of fun to do. Uh, certainly uh, some frightening stuff going on in Washington, D.C. with uh, far too much religious influence uh, coming from and with the active, uh, you know, enthusiastic collaboration of certain congressmen uh, of a religious nature. Uh, and that just doesn't have any, you know, it, it, I don't have a problem with people having religion, but I do have a problem with people mixing their religion into their politics, and I certainly have a problem with people uh, prioritizing their religion and their faith as the number one thing they need to be uh, propagating and disseminating and, and proselytizing while they're on the job as senators or congressmen or politicians. That is completely unacceptable behavior. Anyway, so... We go over some of that and a lot more in the podcast, so you guys can check that out. Uh, the other thing I wanted to do real fast, give a shout out to some recent Patreon supporters who have signed up. Guys, really, thank you very much. This is going to Jack. Thank you for your pledge. And uh, Mavis, up to her uh, monthly amount. Thank you very much. Uh, Yomari, thank you for signing on. So all of you guys and everybody else who has been supporting me through Patreon or any other means, uh, such as one-offs through PayPal and that sort of thing, thank you very much. Very appreciated. Now let's get on with your questions. Kevin Zay. Do you think all cult leader types or, say, people that think they are the second coming of Jesus Christ have issues with mental illness, or is there something more complex happening? Well, there, there could be a number of things going on with anybody who's making claims like that. Sure, it could be a straight-up con or effort to bilk people out of their money, you know, uh, and that could just be a straight criminal swindle, and somebody could be well aware of the fact that that's what they're doing, totally faking it. And, um, you know, they go get themselves educated in some scriptures and they start throwing scriptures around and they uh, grow their hair out and start looking like, you know, white Jesus or something. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, people certainly here in America, perhaps in other places around the world as well, just can't throw their money at them fast enough. You know, it's, it's really pretty sad. Uh, so there is that, okay, as a, um, as a motive for, you know, claiming to be a deep religious figure or Jesus Christ or some other kind of cult leader. Uh, now you say, is it, you know, is it mental illness or something more complex? Well, if it's not an outright con, if it's, if, let's say we have somebody who sincerely or somewhat sincerely believes that this is the case. 
Um, mental illness is itself complicated. So, uh, so I would say, yes, it's a complicated situation, and it's going to be very context-specific. Every single person has their own backstory, has their own cultural identity and background, has their own educational background. Um, upbringing has a lot to do with, or can have a lot to do with, uh, behavior. And, of course, uh, there's the genetic factors. I mean, there's a, when you're looking at human behavior, uh, and you're looking at biological influences or psychological influences, which, uh, again, end up becoming, you know, biological, or they become epigenetic, right? Like external factors that are influencing the person. All of these things are kind of balls up in the area that you got to throw and look at and look, okay, what's, you know, what, what, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And of course, there's looking at a person's behavior over time and what's motivating them over time, right? Maybe they always thought they were Jesus or maybe this is a recent thing. Certain causes of this, um, as I've gone over with L. Ron Hubbard in previous podcasts, include something like temporal lobe epilepsy. You know, you could have physical lesions in the brain or other physical uh, deformities or conditions. You could also have brain damage that could lead to somebody making claims like this. Um, you know, frontal lobe damage especially. Um, frontal lobes tend to apparently uh, have a lot to do with uh, context, with learning contextually when is, is, you know, is certain behavior acceptable and unacceptable. You know, a lot of our sociality and, and getting along with others and all that is, is here. And if you damage this, uh, which, you know, is not hard to do, you get a good solid head blow or you fall down or, you know, something like that and you smack your head up pretty good, you can give yourself a pretty good jolt. And if you do it hard enough or you do it repeatedly, like football players or, or people in other sports, for example, who are constantly suffering head trauma, then you can end up um, with some pretty bizarre behavior if you have brain damage. And I think this probably accounts for a lot more of the weird behavior that you see from people out there than a lot of people think. Um, because head trauma can be hidden. You know, a person can literally experience a head trauma and then forget about it, <laughs> right? Uh, as part of the trauma. Or they just forget about it because it didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. Or it was a big deal at the time, but then they think they healed and got over it. And then that couldn't be what could be causing them to think they're Jesus Christ. Or the next, you know, latest, greatest big thing in religion, like L. Ron Hubbard certainly thought of himself. Um, so you could have that kind of thing underlying that kind of behavior, you know, literally brain damage. You know, a person's upbringing can also have a lot to do with this. If they have a deep, heavy religious indoctrination as a child, that itself can also act as its own form of trauma, especially if it's accompanied with physical violence like beatings or, you know, discipline, quote-unquote, that some of these uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists think is so necessary for raising up a child. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you can see my video uh, interview with uh, Christiana uh, about Bill Gothard and uh, the upbringing in the IBLP, where uh, a, a wonderful man named Michael Pearl literally demonstrates on video with a rag doll how to discipline your child with a rod. 
And uh, that is the teachings of, of that select group of uh, crazy people, as far as I'm concerned, uh, who, who feel that it's you know, very, very necessary to beat their children into submission. Such people uh, definitely can cause uh, brain damage or other kinds of uh, PTSD-type uh, trauma in their children, and, uh, and that can cause all kinds of future problems. In fact, genetically speaking, there are certain genes that can be activated if you beat your child, whereas if they had an upbringing where they were not beaten or traumatized severely over and over again, uh, if you can create a psychosis or a psychotic, uh, even a violent psychotic, uh, by beating your child. So, so that could be a factor as to why somebody might suddenly be making crazy-ass claims about being Jesus or some other great religious figure. So I'm just kind of going off, you know, just sort of like, well, there's this and there's this and there's this. I mean, there's, so, there's a litany of things that could occur to a person during the course of their life that could alter their behavior in fairly significant ways. And so, yes, I do think that it's not just something you want to slap a, okay, he's mentally ill label on and just leave it at that. I mean, you can if that's your only exposure to that particular individual. You can go, oh, yeah, that guy's, that guy's got something going on. But as far as what they've actually got going on, you know, uh, it's, it, you know you, if you really want to know, then you're going to have to dig. You have to find out. And, um, and I think that people are pretty complicated and our behavior is pretty complicated. So it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. It's sort of detective work a little bit, trying to dig in and figure people out this way. Uh, there's a lot of disciplines involved in this because you have neurology, psychology, sociology, etc. right? Um, but it's pretty interesting stuff. So I don't know. I don't know if this is exactly the answer you were looking for or not. Um, but these are some of the things I think might contribute to that. So I hope that this, hope this answers it for you. David Anderson. I've just heard of the survival rundown for the first time. I understand it took about a thousand hours of auditing. Could you please tell us about it and when or why it would come into play? Thanks and keep up the good work. Okay, survival rundown. So this is a Scientology thing, obviously, and it is something that goes back to the 1980s. Uh, this was a, a series of a rundown in Scientology, first off, is just a series of actions that you do. It's a step-by-step. -step. You do one, two, three, four, five. This can involve auditing actions and or training actions. But generally speaking, rundowns tend to be auditing actions. In this case, with a survival rundown, you have a combination of training actions and auditing actions. Um, not entirely unlike a superpower, which is delivered in Clearwater, which also has auditing and what you might call training or uh, in Scientology, there's some administrative actions that you do on that rundown. Uh, it's actually superpowers, a series of rundowns. So the survival rundown is another thing. It's not superpower, it's different, but it's, it's lower level uh, bridge actions that consist of TRs and objective processing. So I've talked lots and lots about that in past videos. I'll go over that briefly again here. In, okay, let's see. Um, 
L. Ron Hubbard developed a kind of auditing called objective processing, which involves looking around rooms, looking around locations, touching things, picking things up, moving things around, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not subjective. It's objective. It has to do with objects in the material universe. So objective, process, objective processing's goal is to orient a person in present time, get them situated attention-wise with their attention in present time, and uh, thereby, right, you're raising them up or you're helping them or assisting them because you're taking away attention that the person has fixated or stuck in the past. That's the idea with objectives. I'm not saying that that's what it does. I'm saying that's what L. Ron Hubbard claims it does. Okay, big difference there. I don't think objective processing is a good thing to be doing, but this is what Scientology claims it does. So you do hours and hours and hours, tens of hours, hundreds of hours on different objective processes. You, for example, there's a series of objective processes where the auditor and the pre-clear sit and um, the auditor says, you know, they're both sitting there knee to knee or the auditor's kind of, kind of moved in on the guy and uh, so he's real close to him and he says, give me that hand, right? And the pre-clear has to give him his hand and he says, thank you. And he puts the hand back, give me that hand, good, give me that hand, good, give me that hand, good. You know, he just keeps giving him his hand. And then they cycle to, this is called the uh, CCHs, CCH1, and then there's CCH2 and 3 and 4, and they cycle through these. And this is just one kind of objective process where you are, uh, the, like CCH2, I think, is uh, um, where you put your hands up, and the other guy puts his hands up against them, and you say, put your hands up against mine, follow them, and contribute to their motion. And then you, the auditor moves his hands around in different patterns, and the pre-clear has to follow. And over time, they move away from each other gradually. Right? They get maybe an inch apart, and then a, you know, a foot apart, and then you know, like three feet apart. And, uh, and that's another kind of objective process where you're just trying to follow the motions of another person. Um, so there's lots and lots and lots and lots of these things. In fact, there's a big-ass thick book full of objective processes. The Survival Rundown was an effort to take the most basic and, and common objective processes that are run on most, you know, cases, on most people, and put them into a rundown along with the TRs, TR 0 to 4 and TR 6 through 9, all of them. So you do the communication drills and you do the control drills. I've, I've detailed these in the past, so I'm not going to go over all of those again, but TR 0 to 4 and TR 6 to 9, right? And you, uh, so the survival rundown is first doing the TRs and then doing these, uh, the learning how to do the objective auditing with another person, and then you audit them, they audit you back and forth on these objectives, and you said it can go for a thousand hours, not always. Sometimes people take significantly less, sometimes people take a thousand hours, sometimes people take more. It's not particularly graded by how many hours it takes you to get through it, but by how long it takes to get through all the battery of objective processes that are run on you. And I think there's about, on the survival rundown, about 12 or so different processes that are run. It's not, it's not meant to take that long. Like a thousand hours is a long time, a long time to be auditing. And I, so that seems at the upper end of what it probably takes people to get through that action. But 
you know, at the same time, I couldn't say for sure. I haven't been in a church of Scientology in quite a few years, and this survival rundown is something that was developed in the 80s and then canceled because it wasn't something L. Ron Hubbard put together. And then Miscavige brought it back. <laughs> and so with the golden age of tech phase two, uh, which I think came out in 2014 or so, um, this survival rundown came out as part of it. So uh, it was previously called uh, the TRs and Objectives Co-Audit. And uh, then, so there was the survival rundown in the 80s. Then there was that, then that got canceled. And there was the TRs and Objectives Co-Audit, which went for many, many years. And then that got canceled, basically replaced by the current survival rundown, which is pretty much how I described uh, the, the, it's the same thing. So um, interesting that Miscavige, you know, that it was canceled back in the day and then brought back, but whatever. Miscavige, this is just another example of Miscavige getting to get away with whatever he wants to as he creates Scientology uh, as he wants it. So that's, that's what that's all about. Kyle Howarth. Do you have any more footage of when you were part of Scientology like you have on the start of your channel? Did you see the recent video footage of Stephen Mango protesting Scientology? And if so, what are your thoughts? Lastly, what are your thoughts on other ex-Scientologists' way of dealing with current members? As I remember you doing a video saying you shouldn't be telling them they are in a cult as that pushes them further in. What do you recommend to do instead? Okay. Uh, a couple questions here, but uh, quickly, I do not have any other footage of myself in the Sea Org. I have uh, like a couple pictures, and I have that, that one little video snippet that somebody else actually found online, and that's about it. I didn't really bring out a whole lot with me. Now, as far as uh, your other questions about protesting and Steve Mango and stuff, um, I did see some of that video uh, where Steve Mango recently went out with um, Nathaniel doing a... Uh, First Amendment audit or protest or whatever they were doing. And uh, basically, they were hanging around on L. Ron Hubbard Way at the Big Blue Complex, where I worked for 17 years. And they were interacting with the security guards and kind of walking along and, and uh, I would say, taunting uh, Scientologists. I mean, they were sort of asking them questions and have a video camera up. And the whole thing was kind of, you know, it's pretty awkward for people when you got a video camera up in their face asking them questions about stuff, even if you're smiling and they're smiling, it's still kind of weird when you don't know them, they don't know you. And of course, when it's Scientology, it's weird times, you know, 3,000. So I'm not really a big proponent of doing that kind of protesting or that kind of activity. I don't think it's very constructive. But it really all depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to disrupt or or interbulate, as they would use, as they would say in Scientology, then that kind of thing is exactly what you want to be doing, and that's the kind of thing that Angry Gay Pope and uh, Nasty Nathaniel and and I guess Stephen Mango now are are into doing. I I don't think that's constructive activity. Um, I've uh, AGP said that he specifically goes out and gives Scientologists a hard time, gets in their face. Um, because he wants them to get in trouble with the ethics section of Scientology and thereby see, oh, I'm getting in trouble here because, you know, and this was not warranted and suddenly they'll have a wake-up call. I don't know that that's ever worked. I don't particularly think that's the best way to go about trying to get people out of Scientology is get them in trouble with Scientology. But I get the idea. I mean, I understand the logic of it. I just don't think it's it, it's very workable. If 
you know, if people come out of Scientology because of that, then fine. I just never heard of it. Um, I think that it takes more intervention type tactics and I think it takes uh, more of seed planting and I think seed planting involves, um, you know, if you're going to get thoughts or doubts placed in another person's head, then you're going to have to have them in a frame of mind where they're going to want to consider what you've said or at least receive the information without having a bunch of, you know, anger and, and, and frustration and upset connected with it, right? Like at a, at a protest venue where, you know, you, the, the, the Scientologists don't want to see the protesters. They don't want to deal with protesters. They don't want to have anything to do with them. They think that just right away, if you're protesting Scientology, you're a suppressive person or you're a, a PTS person, which we'll talk about a little bit more later in the show here as, on a later question. So they, but what that does by them labeling you, they instantly nullify everything you're saying. They do not have to listen to another word you've said because you are a suppressive person or you are a PTS. And, um, and that's why I've said, you know, if you really want to get the job done of trying to get somebody out of a cult situation, you are never, ever going to do it by antagonizing them in any way. That's never, ever, ever going to get somebody out. At least not on an immediate right there basis or on a, on a short-term basis. It's going to take, it's, it takes more work than that. So, um, so that's kind of my general view about not just, you know, Mango and those guys, but anybody doing that kind of work. You know, I, I think protest has its place. And I think if you can get media involved and get a lot of people out there, that's effective protesting, right? If you have a few folks show up, nobody cares. But if you get a ton of people out, like Anonymous was doing, and media show up, now you're now the goal is different because now you're not necessarily trying to use your protest in order to deconvert people. You're now bringing massive public attention to the issue, and that's a that's a different purpose and a good purpose to be, you know, utilizing or, or be on in order to do these big, huge protests. And that has its own long-term effects on the Scientologists who see that kind of activity. And we know that that's effective. Um, it's it, it indirectly effective or longer-term effective, right? That's seed planting. So, um, so that's kind of more of the... When I talk about... Um, you know, if I was ever going to go to a protest or if I was going to get involved in protesting or, or endorsing protests, it would be that style of, for, of protesting um, that, I would, that I would think is, is more uh, something I think we, you know, would be want to be involved in. But, you know, I say all this, and this is just my opinion, okay? I am not suggesting uh, that, um, you know, that AGP or Nathaniel or any of these guys stop what they're doing if they're having, if they're getting results with it and I just don't know about it, fine. You know, it's not my, not my place to tell others how to conduct their protests. Uh, but you asked and so I'm giving you my opinion about it. So I hope, you know, uh, I hope that's clear. So thanks for asking. Adria VZ Haloub, how do you feel about Mark Bunker running for city council in Clearwater, Florida? Will you be giving him any shout-outs or endorsements via your podcast when his campaign officially begins? Yeah, absolutely. I'm all about Mark uh, making it onto the city council in Clearwater. It's about damn time that somebody got into that council who actually really gets it when it comes to Scientology. So far, we have not seen any real evidence that the rest of the city council of Clearwater over the years has really gotten what it is that they're dealing with. 
Um, however, I've also, to be fair, I've also commented earlier on the fact that uh, city council can only do so much, and civil rights and, and human rights and that sort of thing allow people to express themselves with their religion, and, and Scientology is a religion and unrecognized under the law, so you have to treat it that way. So they can't treat it like the criminal enterprise it is, because the city council is not a law or fact, you know, a law body, they're not going to prosecute Scientology. So what are they going to do, right? They have they have their hands tied in a number of ways, and I understand that. But I still think, and that all being said, I still think they're missing the plot on Scientology, and I think that getting Mark in there will be a very good move uh, in the in the right direction for that. And if I'm wrong, and if all the city council have totally totally understood what Scientology is all about and just haven't done anything about it because of other reasons. Well, I'd like to know what those other reasons are. I'm a little curious about that. Clearwater's not my bailiwick. I'm not real familiar with Clearwater. I'm not, I've only been there a couple times and I'm not intimate with the scene there. So, um, so you are also getting my reactions from a distance, right? I'm not, I'm not intimate with that area. Um, but I would definitely like to get Mark onto my podcast, and I am all about um, him making it onto that city council. So that's, you know, I, I, hope he, uh, I hope we can make that happen. Larry Hovis. I'm about a third of the way through Dianetics, and I wanted to pause and ask you a couple of questions about it. The first thing someone who doesn't know much about Scientology or Dianetics notices about this book is that it makes astounding promises about the benefits you'll get from following the program cure to all psychosomatic diseases, total memory recall, turning your brain into a supercomputer, no more arthritis, myopia, asthma, etc. All religions have their share of crazy beliefs. Christians believe in life after death, though you can't really prove it one way or another. But Hubbard is very explicit about particular concrete results you're going to get by following his steps and says over and over again that these results have been scientifically proven. He makes the claim so often that it's unintentionally funny. Authentic scientific works do not tell you repeatedly, trust me, this is real science. What's more, he claims that it's easy to get these amazing results. Anyway, my question to you is, what do Scientologists think about the promises that Hubbard makes in this book? Do they take them seriously or not worry about them too much? Do they really believe that it's science? Do they believe that they're going to get superpowers once they finish this or that stage of the program? When the results don't materialize, how do they explain that? You were a Scientologist for 27 years, if I recall. Back then, how did you manage the dissonance between Hubbard's claims and the easily observable fact that Scientologists still get sick, don't have total recall, and so forth? All right. Thank you very much for this, Larry. Um, so, Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health, book one. This book uh, definitely is off the rails in terms of all the claims that it makes, and it, and it is way exaggerated as to what you're actually going to get out of Dianetics. Here's the thing. All that sales talk was done back in, you know, 1950 in order to generate a mass interest campaign in that material and to sell them on doing the procedure. And the procedure would sort of sell itself was the idea. And the procedure, remember, is a form of hypnosis. And I can't really stress that enough. 
Dianetics is not something separate and unique and different from hypnosis. It is a kind of hypnosis. It involves trance induction, it involves recalling things in the past, and it involves um, like reliving things in the past, not just recalling them, but actually going, sending your mind back and casting yourself and putting yourself back into incidents of pain and stress and trauma in your past and reliving them. And it involves an auditor who is giving you orders and commands, not just asking you questions. They, the auditor will order you to repeat certain phrases, for example, or direct you as to where to go based on the auditor's understanding of what's going on, which is literally a no understanding at all of what's going on because auditors in Dianetics and Scientology have no clue about, through their training at least, they're not required to have any clue about the brain, about psychology, about psychological principles, or about what it is that they're actually messing with. They don't get any of that. All they have is Hubbard's nonsense explanations for what they're doing, and those explanations are deceptive on purpose because Hubbard didn't want people thinking that he was hypnotizing people in order to get the results he was getting with Dianetics. I mean, that's really the long and short of it is he, he created something with hypnosis and Freudian and other things piled in there, and then he changed some of the nomenclature around, and then he basically taught people how to engage in hypnosis with other people. And there are all these pre- and post-hypnotic uh, suggestions and, and commands that are occurring during the process of it. And all this literature, all this, all this, uh, these claims and promises that Hubbard is making are part of the pre-hypnotic suggestions. The person's getting all, they're building up this whole idea of all this wonderful stuff they're going to get from this Dianetics counseling. And then they start doing the Dianetics counseling and they have all these built-up expectations. And if any of those expectations are hit at all in any way, if they get any kind of positive gain or result, which they, of course, want to achieve, that's why they're doing Dianetics in the first place, then they automatically, because of the way our lack of critical thinking works and our emotional investments work, um, they will assign more value to what they got out of their Dianetics auditing than is really warranted by the facts. That's that emotional investment again. And so they um, don't... So what ends up happening is... They don't achieve the results that L. Ron Hubbard claims, but the results that they think they get are so wonderful, right? They've built it up, built it up, built it up, that they go, oh, well, I got this result, so it must be that eventually I'll get those great, big, huge, wonderful results that Hubbard promised. And they continue on, and they keep investing, and then you get what's called a sunk cost fallacy, where they keep investing time and effort and money into this thing, so they they feel that they must be getting something back from it, and and people can kind of create their own reality that way, and that's part of what's going on with Dianetics and with all of Scientology, really. All pseudoscience really is kind of everything I just kind of laid out. That's that's kind of what happens. Uh, okay, so the sunk cost fallacy leads a person down the road far enough that they finally get to the place where they realize, I'm not going to be cured of my leukemia. My eyes aren't getting any better as a result of this Dianetics auditing. 
but look at all these gains I've already had, and then the additional information that they then pile into this is they learn more about Dynetics and more about Scientology as they, you know, get on this bridge to total freedom and start paying for more services and doing more, is they start telling themselves, they start convincing themselves that, oh, Hubbard made all these claims, but then he found that it, on, that, that it only worked on certain select people that Hubbard was auditing, and he had to do all this further research in order to get techniques and procedures that all of us could use to get these wonderful, miraculous results. Because it wasn't that he was lying, see. It was just that he was such a good auditor, and everybody else wasn't such a good auditor, and the book doesn't really give you enough of all the techniques and everything that Hubbard was using. See, this is kind of, the, uh, everything I'm telling you right now is stuff Hubbard actually said after Dynetics was published in the lectures that Hubbard gave and in the rest of the books and materials that Hubbard put out. He was constantly apologizing and explaining why the results weren't available at this step, but now they're going to be. Oh, and now they're going to be, oh, well, we weren't clearing people with this, but now clearing's broken open. This was the constant recurring refrain of through, all through the 1950s. Hubbard was constantly promising the sun, moon, and stars, but only delivering a, you know, a rotten piece of meat, right, on a, on a, on a slab. So, so people kind of kept going with it. A lot of people saw through it and left. And that's why there's this sort of, you know, building Dynetics and Scientology through the 50s was a slow, grinding process for a long time. Hubbard's followers came and went and came and went based on all these big promises he'd been making. So, so bottom line is, um, you know, me, other people in Dynetics and Scientology, as we got involved, read this book or read these claims, wanted to believe them, invested in it got something out of it and said, well, we got something, so it must lead to these great big claims. Not a warranted assumption, but we made it anyway. And you continue on and continue on and continue on with it. And um, until eventually, finally, you know, you realize, oh, wait a minute, none of this is working out at all. And, and it takes years, unfortunately, but you find out, wait a minute, I'm pretty much the same now as I was when I got in. What's happening here, right? And all that luster and wonderfulness and all that sort of fades and, and you realize that you've been taken for a ride. And that's kind of the, 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 the progression of, of what happens in people's heads when they get into these groups, which is why eventually the ultimate product of Scientology is people leaving Scientology, you know, because eventually most people wake up to what's going on. Some in a short period of time, a lot of people in a short period of time, some of us, you know, took us quite a bit longer. Um, and there were other, of course, there were other reasons why that was, like being raised in it. That's a that's a big, <laughs> big motive to 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 stay into it too. So, um, so yeah, so that's how you can see an obvious fact like Scientologists get sick, and still believe that Dynetics works, right? Is because the research trail wasn't finished yet. That's one one big ray that Scientologists justify it to themselves. So I hope that gives a little bit of clarity. You know, this is a big topic. I could talk about other reasons people uh, hang around and hang on. There's all kinds of social pressures and other things too, but I think you get the idea. Carolyn Oceanek. 
If the state of clear means that you've achieved cause over life, feelings, thoughts, yada yada yada, how is it that Ron justified PTSs and suppressives? Shouldn't your reactive mind be free of outside influence, sort of like a Buddhist monk, letting outside influences wash over your perfectly controlled state? Instead, no one's questioning how futile and fragile the state of clear is. If one PTS can ruin everything, what's the point? Great question, Caroline, and absolutely true that, that you're, you're spot on with this, but Hubbard did beat you to the punch, and here's how this works. Uh, first off, to be entirely technically correct, uh, when you're clear that you are not cause over life, space, thought, matter, energy, space, time, and form, and all that, blah, 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 clear simply means you no longer have your own reactive mind. That's what it means. So on the first dynamic, you yourself, that's what the first dynamic is, you, uh, you no longer have your own reactive mind, but you do still have a whole bunch of other case that you're going to have to deal with, a whole bunch of other messes and traps and nonsense. Uh, that is, that's what the OT levels are about, okay? However, the point of your question still completely stands because if I substitute OT for clear, you know, it's the same drill, right? Like, it's, it's still just as fragile and you still have this thing where you can go PTS or you have this suppressive come along and give you a hard time and that's what makes you PTS. PTS stands, by the way, for Potential Trouble Source. Somebody who is connected to a suppressive person. And a suppressive person in Scientology is an antisocial personality, a person who has evil intentions and who desires uh, the subjugation and uh, suppression, pushing people down of mankind, right? And they want everybody to suffer. They don't want the world to be a good place. SPs or suppressive people are, are bad guys. And if you get in their vicinity, you go PTS. You become a potential trouble source, according to L. Ron Hubbard. And you can have ups and downs, emotional roller coasters, all kinds of problems. You can get sick. You can get really sick. You can get chronically sick, uh, depending on how deep and how long the PTS condition lasts. So, um, so PTS is kind of a, a kind of a thing, and it was developed in the mid to late 1960s. L. Ron Hubbard came up with this concept. So up until then, there hadn't been any idea of PTS, and you just go up the bridge and do your thing, and and it was supposed to be this mega powerful, you know, state of operation where you're going to be clear, and then you're going to be OT, and the world's going to be your oyster, and all that. But then Hubbard developed this thing about SPs because. Um, he needed some explanation for why it was that OTs got sick, people roller coastered, some people did Scientology and then they left, what was up with that? So this PTS moniker or label comes out and it becomes this catch-all for any kind of failure or problem with Dynetics or Scientology is basically because you're PTS. You've gotten into the, into the vicinity of a suppressive and that suppressive is trying to suppress you. However, there's a little more to it, and this is the key to answering your question here because this is really important. In Scientology, one of the factors behind why a person goes PTS is not just because they're in the vicinity of a suppressive person, but also they have committed overts of some kind against the suppressive. In other words, they've done things to that person, bad things things they shouldn't have done, right? Moral transgressions. In other words, let's say you have um, the big bad, let's say your boss at work is a suppressive. He's constantly giving you a hard time, won't give you a raise, doesn't give you fair pay, you know, insults your work, 
you know, just a not a good guy, right? He's suppressive. He's suppressive to you. You will not go PTS to him. You will not get sick. You'll not start having the roller coasters and all the other nonsense that comes along with it until you start committing overts against that boss of some kind. And it could be as simple as complaining about him to other people, taking his parking place, uh, not doing your work as hard as you should. That could be an overt, right? You slack off on your job in order to get back at him or just because you're a slacker or because you're a normal human being, right? Who sometimes takes over long breaks or surfs the web while you're at work or whatever it is you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Those things are the things that make you PTS to the suppressive because you're not willing to let the suppressive know that you've been up to that stuff, right? You're trying to get back at him or you don't, you just want to avoid him. You don't want to talk to him. You don't want him to know anything about you or your intimate personal life or whatever. So you're not going to confess to him. He's not your confessor, right? You're not going to go to him and say, I've been a bad guy and I took your parking place and I wasn't working as hard because that's just going to give him more reasons to give you a hard time, right? But the point is that you are supposed to be impenetrable, invulnerable, impervious to all of the, you know, shellackings of the suppressive until you start acting back in some fashion, overtly or covertly. So, so that's, the, that's the, little, the little gotcha on the PTS thing. Because if you go, as a Scientologist, to go talk to the ethics officer at the org, and they start doing this PTS handling with you, and they're interviewing you and finding out who you're PTS to and what's the suppressive person doing to you and, and all that, you'll work out your handling or disconnect, but the ethics officer is also going to have you sit down and write your overts and withholds, your sins. You're going to have to confess on paper. You're going to have to write down all the bad things you've done to the suppressive and in general. And um, this is just part of the standard handling for this stuff is, is you get, uh, is you do an OW write-up. This happens all the time. Not every single time with every single PTS handling, but often enough. And um, the point here, of course, that I'm getting to or driving towards here with all of this is that in the end, it's on you. It's not on the SP, it's on you. The SP is not the one who's causing you to be roller coastering and getting sick and all of that. You're causing that by your own overts, your own bad deeds. So, um, so the undoing of your clear or OT powers is on you, not on the suppressive. You see how that works? Ultimately, that's the case. Scientologists routinely will blame the SPs for everything, of course, because that's human nature. Um, but in their personal handlings uh, on, you know, doing PTS handlings in the church, they end up going back to them. It always, always, always in Scientology goes back to you. And you're the one who's ultimately responsible for anything and everything wrong with you. So I hope that kind of explains or answers the question you asked. Um, it's not... None of this, you know, has, of course, has any basis in any factual anything. It's just Hubbard's ramblings. And another, I, I think you can kind of see, though, that if you, if you go through the whole sequence there, you see how this whole PTS thing is actually just another control mechanism, you see? It's just another way to introvert you and drive your responsibility in on you, you see, 
and how, in the end, anything bad that happens to you is your fault. <laughs> that was L. Ron Hubbard. So, uh, anyway, hope that handles that, answers that question for you. Okay, guys, thanks very much for coming around and watching me here. Uh, and I hope these answers were entertaining, informative, and educational for you. I will see you guys next week. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section below. And if you're enjoying my channel, consider joining me on Patreon because that's what keeps the lights on and keeps the show going. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.